Good morning, everyone. Oh, better stand a bit closer. Um, the reading this morning comes from Mark 6, verses 1 to 29. If you have this Holy Bible, it's 711. And if you have the other one, then it's 1008. I'll just give you a minute. So Mark 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him, that even he, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown among his relatives and his own house is a prophet without honour. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hand on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but, do not, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, Shake the dust off your feet when you leave as testimony against them. They went out and preached that the people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herod... Her, uh, <laughs> I got it last time. <laughs> ah, let's try it again. Herodias um, nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. 
So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Thank you, Alison, and uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church today. It's uh, terrific to be here, isn't it? Uh, Let's just pray before we come to think about that passage from God's Word. Father, we want to thank you for uh, this passage of Scripture, and it's our prayer that as we consider it now, that uh, you, by your Spirit, would be uh, granting us uh, insight into the passage, insight to the insight to the person and the work of Jesus and insight and commitment as to how we ought to respond rightly to him and we pray these things in Jesus most precious name amen be assured of this God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ Now, these were the words that the Apostle Peter spoke to a crowd of people on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They're confronting words, don't you think? I mean, uh, think about it. Uh, Imagine that if you had been in the crowd that day. Imagine if you had been someone who had intentionally been involved in uh, assisting, in working towards the... Uh, the death, the execution of Jesus. Uh, Perhaps uh, you might have been someone who'd been in the crowd uh, before he was crucified and been one of those people who'd been shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. Imagine that. And now imagine that he has come back to life. How would you feel? Anxious? Guilty? Um, Afraid? Afraid that now you would actually have to face Jesus, the one whose death, whose execution you supported? How would you feel? Uh, I think that uh, fear would be a a very reasonable uh, thing to experience, wouldn't it? Very reasonable indeed. But, you know, this is not the first time uh, in the New Testament, in the Bible when someone experienced that same kind of fear, uh, the, the dread that someone who they had been involved in killing, uh, in fact murdering, has actually come back to life. Now, this was a fear which King Herod experienced. And it was a fear that he experienced not about Jesus, but rather about someone else. It was the fear that John the Baptist had risen from the dead, that John the Baptist had come back to life. Now, why? Uh, Why would Herod be in fear of that? And uh, what has that got to do with us? Well, that's what Mark chapter 6 is all about today. If you'd like to have that open in your Bibles, I think you'll find that very helpful. And uh, you'll recall that uh, Jesus had been going about his ministry in the region of Galilee 
And as he had done that, as Jesus was ministering in the region of Galilee, news about Jesus spread. It started to spread, uh, so much so that in fact King Herod began hearing things, began hearing stories about Jesus. But let's go back a, a step or two, shall we? How is it that Jesus became so well known? Now, last week we saw that the crowds had flocked to Jesus, hadn't they? It was shoulder to shoulder around Jesus as people uh, came to hear Jesus' teaching and as people came to, uh, to be healed by Jesus. Last week we uh, heard about a woman who had had a flow of blood for 12 years uh, and a, a man whose daughter was dying. Uh, the crowds had come the crowds had come to listen to Jesus. The crowds had come to be healed by Jesus and to be helped by Jesus. But you know what? When Jesus left Capernaum and he went back to his hometown, the reception was a little bit different to that. Now, I guess that you've heard the saying that familiarity breeds contempt. You've heard that one? And it's, um, it, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because when you know someone, when they've grown up, uh, you've grown up with them and when you think you know them reasonably well, uh, I think that it's, it's sometimes difficult uh, to appreciate just how impressive that person actually is. And yet, when Jesus preached in his hometown synagogue, <laughs> at first people were impressed. In fact, in, uh, in verse 2, uh, we read that they were amazed by his teaching. They were amazed by it. Uh, but uh, they weren't the only people who were, uh, they weren't the only ones who were amazed in this passage because in verse 6 we see that Jesus was also amazed and you know that there's only a couple of examples in the Gospels where we hear that Jesus was the one who was amazed by something and what is he amazed at the, in verse 6? He ama he's amazed, they're amazed by his teaching but Jesus is amazed by their lack of faith, their lack of faith. You see the Jews... Um, they had a saying which is a little bit like ours, a little bit different. Their version of the saying was that only in his hometown is a prophet without honour. Now, in one sense, uh, we can understand that uh, these people of Nazareth had uh, questions about Jesus. I mean, he had grown up in Nazareth. And they know his mother. They know his brothers. Uh, his sisters, they all live in Nazareth and now, strangely, he's in the synagogue and he's teaching God's word better than any of the trained rabbis. And more than that, he is also miraculously healing people. That's strange. <laughs> That's very strange to this. I mean, see their question in verse 3? What do they ask in verse 3? They say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the carpenter? That was Jesus' trade. And to them, uh, Jesus had been the local chippy, uh, the guy that worked with his hands, with timber and uh, with saws, and the guy that helped build houses. And so where did he get this, these abilities? Where did he get this ability to teach 
where did he get this ability to perform miracles? Now, that's a good question. That's a right question to ask, isn't it? It's a right question to ask, especially about the miracles. And you know, there's only two possibilities there. Where did he get this ability from? Well, it either comes from Satan or it comes from God. But you know, they, they weren't actually interested in digging uh, more deeply. Instead, we're told that they were just, they were just offended by him. I mean, isn't he just the carpenter? Who does he think he is? Now, other places uh, like Capernaum had been uh, greatly blessed by many healings from Jesus, but not his hometown. The prophet of Nazareth, as he's referred to elsewhere, was rejected in Nazareth. And uh, he he didn't do many healings. Have a look at verse 5. He could not do many miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them and he was amazed by their lack of faith. Now, he could not do many miracles there. It's not just that, uh, it's not that Jesus was incapable of doing the miracles. It's not that Jesus was incapable of healing people. He could have done that, but Jesus doesn't heal people just to save them physically, does he? No, he heals people. He wants them to place their faith in him so that they would be truly saved, that their physical healing is a physical manifestation of their spiritual healing, that their their faith in him. And so he doesn't perform party tricks. He just doesn't go around healing people who don't have any faith. That's not what he's on about. And so he left his hometown amazed he was amazed by his hometown amazed though by their lack of faith but around Galilee uh, Nazareth was certainly one of the major towns but there were many other smaller towns and, and, and villages and so in verses 6 through to 13 the 12 disciples who had received intensive teaching from Jesus would now be involved in extensive evangelism extensive evangelism around the circuit around those towns and those villages uh, of Galilee but before they head off they were briefed by Jesus Uh, check out verse 8 these were his instructions Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. And whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Now, you know, if, um, if I was uh, leading a mission team and I was about to send them out on their mission, uh, I would brief them. Um, but I think I'd be briefing them on the things that, uh, the things that you must take <laughs> with you. You, know, you must take your sleeping bag. You must take your, make sure you got your cash. You must show, you, I, I'd be telling them the things which they must take, but this is the opposite. Take no supplies, no food, no money, and not even an extra coat for when it gets cold. 
Now, why would, why would Jesus say this? <laughs> what would the briefing be about what you must not take? Um, some people say, and I guess most people uh, would interpret this as saying that th this is really to, to test their faith, uh, to, to help them to, to trust that in this mission, in this journey, in this travelling around, that God would supply their needs. And uh, that's, that may well be right. However, I wonder if it's actually not their faith which is being tested, but rather the faith of those who hear the message which is being tested here. Because they represent Jesus. Uh, like Jesus, they teach repentance. Like Jesus, they heal the sick. Like Jesus, they have been given the authority to drive out demons. So when people accept their message and accept their ministry, who is it that they're really accepting? They're accepting Jesus. And when people are accepting Jesus, they express that with hospitality. Um, a couple of weeks back, uh, a, a, a beach mission team uh, leader made contact with me to say that her beach mission would be travelling uh, through Port Macquarie in early January on their way up to Byron Bay to do evangelism there and they needed a place to stay halfway. Uh, would it be possible if their team could sleep in our hall for the night. Now, how did I respond to that? I said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> that, that would be our privilege for you to stay in our hall. Uh, we want you to stay. We, we want to, we, we, because you preach the gospel and we are as one, we are united. Now imagine if my response had been different. Imagine if they'd said, could we just stay in your hall for a night? We're doing evangelism up on the north coast. And I would say, absolutely not. There is no way, in, not because it's not available, not because it's not practical, not because we, we can't, but because we actually would not want to be hospitable to you. Now, whose faith would be under the microscope at that point. Their faith? My faith. My faith would be the one, that it, the faith that is being judged. My faith in Jesus. And by extension, I kind of represent you in that conversation. And it's the same for any place which did not welcome the disciples. Check out verse 11. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. Shake the dust off your feet. Now, uh, you know what it's like when you've, you've been down the beach and you arrive back home? Uh, what's, what's the thing you must do before you step into the house? You've got to clean your feet, don't you? You've got to get that sand off your feet. You've got to brush it. You've got to wash it. You've got to, you cannot bring the sand into the house, at least not in our place, not on my wife's watch. <laughs> she does the vacuuming. 
You know, for some Jews, some pious Jews, whenever they uh, left Israel uh, and went into Gentile territory for a visit, maybe for business or whatever, you know what they would do before they stepped back inside, over the border, inside Israel? They would shake the dust, they would shake the dirt off their feet so that they would not bring it in, so that they would not contaminate Israel with Gentile soil. <laughs> but what about these towns? I mean, these towns here are in Israel's territory. These are in, in Galilee. Why then should the disciples um, shake the dirt off their feet uh, as they were leaving these towns? Well... It's because these towns refused to listen to them. These towns refused to uh, offer them hospitality. And by doing so, that by their lack of faith in Jesus, they showed that they were not actually Israel, that they were as good as Gentiles. And so you'd shake the dust off your feet before you leave that town and step back into God's kingdom in a physical sense. Uh, that's what it symbolises. It symbolises that they are not God's people, they are not in God's kingdom and they are under judgement. In fact, in another account of this uh, episode, it says that it would be, uh, be better for Sodom and Gomorrah uh, than for these towns on the day of judgement. And so can you imagine the stir that this created? Uh, I mean, at first, it was just Jesus... Now there were a dozen more preaching, healing, driving out demons, causing offence and they're spreading out all over Galilee. It's no wonder that news filtered through to the king. Although Herod Antipas was never actually officially given the title of king. Um, his title was Tetrarch, which means ruler of one quarter. Ruler of one quarter. You know, uh, the Herod that was king when Jesus was born was Herod the Great, uh, and he was this man's father. Uh, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was, uh, was split up into four quarters. And Herod Antipas, his son, this man, was given one quarter of his father's kingdom, which was mostly Galilee. Uh, he was a competent ruler in many senses, in terms of building projects, infrastructure, and so on that he developed. But he was superstitious. He was spineless. He was an immoral man who by his sin had made a mess of his life. You see, uh, he had been married to the daughter of the king of the nearby kingdom of the Nabataeans. But he divorced her. He divorced her so that he could marry the wife of his half-brother, Philip, or ex-wife. 
of his half-brother. And her name, confusingly, as we saw in the Bible reading, was, uh, was also, sounds like Herod, her name was Herodias. Herodias. And this uh, caused Herod, uh, Herod Antipas, to become a man under threat, under serious med- uh, military threat from the king of the Nabataeans, uh, the, the father of the daughter who he had divorced in order to marry a, another woman, and that serious military threat was valid and was actually actualized, and Herod was eventually defeated by the king of the Nabataeans, but it also brought him under spiritual threat. Spiritual threat which had brought, been brought to his attention by John the Baptist, who in verse 18 had, had eyeballed Herod, had uh, rebuked Herod with the truth. It is not lawful, he said, for you to have your brother's wife. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16 Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, it takes, um, it takes the kind of courage that, that comes from, from trusting in God and knowing that God is in control and knowing that you've just got to do the right thing under God regardless of the consequences uh, to... Uh, to rebuke uh, a first century ruler like that. That takes courage. But you know the person who was most angered by John's rebuke was not actually Herod, but it was his new wife, Herodias. How dare he expose the sin of my marriage like that? How dare he do that? And Herodias... Uh, she harboured this grudge against him which was so great that she wanted him dead. She wanted him dead and she would have arranged for that to happen except for one thing and that is that her husband Herod was superstitious. You see, uh, Herod knew that John was a righteous man and he believed that by, by murdering John that that was only going to add to his woes. And so in a, in a bizarre twist, uh, what Herod did was he had John arrested and imprisoned uh, for the sake of protective custody. He put him in protective custody so as to prevent his wife Herodias from being able to arrange for his murder. The problem was the prison was kind of on site at one of the palaces where he which he had which gave in verse 21 Herodias her opportunity Uh, imagine the scene it was Herod's birthday party and all of the top men of the of of government of uh, military and of business had been invited to his place for a and gathered for a lavish uh, feast, a feast fitting for the, the, for the king that Herod wished that he actually was. And so uh, what have you got? You've got men, you've got food, you've got booze. Um, enter a woman. The daughter of Herodias 
from her previous marriage to Herod's brother, Philip. So Herod's niece. She's young, attractive, and she enters in order to perform a sensual dance. Sensual and therefore disarming. Now, if her mother Herodias had actually engineered this, then it worked a treat because after the dance, uh, seduced by her presence and in order to impress his guests, uh, Herod makes a rash and very foolish promise. Whatever you want, he says to the girl, up to half my kingdom, I will give to you. And her mother was only too willing to give her advice as to what to ask for. The head of John the Baptist served appropriately for the banquet on a platter. Herod is trapped. A spineless man that he is, he doesn't want to lose face in front of all of his guests. And so he orders the execution. Imagine the gruesome scene as later that night the platter carrying the head is brought into the banquet room and handed to this young girl, this young woman, who then hands it to her mother. As a superstitious man, Herod was not thrilled by this. But this is, in Mark 6, this is, this is, a, this is a flashback. Um, and it's now uh, some time after this macabre birthday party when Herod uh, hears word about Jesus. And when Herod hears word about Jesus, he thinks that his worst fear has come true, that there is a man uh, with, his, with his disciples who is travelling around inside Herod's territory who has supernatural powers. He has miraculous powers to heal people. He has miraculous powers to drive out evil spirits and he's in Herod's territory and there's a few theories about who he is. The one Herod believes is the one he expresses in verse 16 when he says this, he says, and I quote, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. Now, he's got that wrong, of course, but if he were right, what kind of news would this be for Herod? Would it be good news that you know, John is, is, is not dead, he's come back to life? Or would it be bad news that Herod may now have to face him? Herod feared John because John was righteous and Herod knew that he was not. He feared him. So what about Jesus? What about the one who actually has been raised from the dead? Is it right to fear Jesus? 
Uh, in Acts chapter 2, um, Peter proclaimed to that crowd, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. How would you feel? Anxious? Sorrowful? Frightened? All of the above? Well, on that day, uh, the people were, and we're told, they were cut to the heart and they asked the disciples, what shall we do? What shall we do about this? How should we respond? Good question. And it's a good question for, for us because they may have killed Jesus, but it was our sin which in fact took him to the cross. Now, uh, recently I was having a chat with a lady and uh, she said to me that because Jesus died and rose again, that it's all good news because now everybody, every single person, is now going to heaven. Is that right? No. Because just as Herod was afraid of John the Baptist, it's right to fear the one who actually has been raised from the dead. That is a right fear. Because he has gone to his Father in heaven from where he will come again one day and when he returns he comes as judge. He comes as our judge. That's frightening. It should be frightening. But fear is not the only option. The better choice is faith. Uh, to trust that his death paid for your sin and in response to repent, to hand your life over to loving and serving Jesus so that his resurrection is a reason not for fear and judgment but for forgiveness and eternal life. The very reason that he died and rose again. What must we do, said the crowd in Acts chapter 2? Repent and be baptised, said Peter, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That is the right response. That is the response of those who have no need now to fear Jesus as judge, but to worship him as king, as ruler, as Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, uh, it is right to fear Jesus uh, when we know that we've not repented, when we know that he comes again as judge. But Father, we thank you that his death on the cross was for our sins, to pay the debt that we owed to you, and that his resurrection means that we can have new life. We pray for each one of us here, Lord God, that we would not take his death and resurrection for granted, but rather that we would respond with faith and repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And we pray for our world, for there are so many who, like the people of Nazareth, ignore Jesus 
like the people in those towns will not receive his message father their future is judgment so we pray lord god that by your spirit and your the word of the gospel that many more would turn to you and we pray these things in jesus name amen we go and sing then we'll be sharing together in the Lord's Supper. So let's stand and sing the Servant King, really reflecting on the fact that Jesus came to die for us and serve us. Now to follow him, to bring our love. 